Yeah. All right. Good. Welcome everybody. All right. Good. Welcome everybody. Welcome to our biblical Q&A night. Welcome to Q&A night. Welcome to everybody who's here and everybody who's online. Pastor Chris could be here tonight. He wanted to be, but he had another obligation. So I'll be the MC. I'll be the MC. Unfortunately, I don't have to be up here alone. I have many other side speakers. And we're going to be talking about biblical marriage tonight. We have some sensitive questions that have been sent to us. If you um, have a question, if you have a question on biblical marriage, um, number is going to put a number, number, a text number up on the screen, um, and uh, actually, I don't really remember the numbers. Really Would you text it to me so I can just tell the people in the audience here? So all that said, so all that said, the topic is biblical marriage, and I just wanted to introduce our speakers here tonight. So my name is Marcus Handy, and so my name is Marcus Handy, and this is my lovely wife Kim. And uh, on my right, and uh, on my right we have John and Marty Slivkoff. And uh, you're going to mention how long I'm, I was going to mention how long I've been married. And married. They have been married 55 years. So praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And then on um, my left, and then on my left, we have Jim and Teresa Ganaway, and they have been married for 32 so, years. So yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, amen, amen. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord. Oh, yeah, and Kim and I have been married for 15. So we're all here to talk about marriage with you, which is a topic near and dear to all of our hearts. And we know that the Lord's very heart wanted that people marriage would be that it be blessed, and it be yeah, it be lived out for His glory. That's our heart tonight. That's our heart tonight. Sharing from the Word of God, we want you to be blessed and built up. And uh, glorified in you. We want the Lord so, to glorify in you. You're so married, whether you're um, single or married, um, the Lord has something for you tonight. So with all that said, so with all that said I'm going to ask John to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll get to our questions. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. Father, we thank you that we can honor you. Thank you for the grace and come to you. It's our subject that is very clear to your heart. very clear to your heart that you are blessing and are blessing in a very important way. Two very important chairs and beautiful truths about beautiful truths about your character. Just that as we do it tonight, just that as we do it clearly, there'll be encouragement, encouragement ultimately. And later to the on a greater beach of us here, and on a beach of us here, and we must end this page, and we must end this page. Glorify you, and glorify you is increasingly, that is increasingly, it's an assurity in the bosom of our tree, and the goal its own way, the goal its own way. Thank you that we need to be, thank you that that to be one that has seemed to be a way that's right, to be a way that's wider up to the ways of the other up of the ways that we want to. Okay, this is kind of a this interesting experience. 
very interesting. It's very helpful. It's boring. It's not coming Because we have usually, because we don't share the platform together, share the platform. So we've had to get back around how we want to around how we want to turn this unwrap this turn this unwrap. I think we're going to do okay. I think we're going to do okay. I realize that that's a little different challenge for us. It's a little different challenge for us. It's not fashion or Mario. It's same fashion or Mario. And the same make this so good. Marcus, I guess we have Chris and Abel and Olga coming and Abel and Olga coming But we have to go back. But we have to do order couples, yes. Do order couples. Borrow a phrase from to borrow a sounds of music. That sounds of music. Very beginning. That's the very very beginning. Is the very very beginning. Of course, that's Genesis chapter one, Genesis where we are given the we are given divinely ordained divinely ordained definition of marriage, definition of marriage. And I should say that we hope it's all that's good here, that contrary to what some might marriage is something that just resolved over a period of time, over a period of time, socially developed. The Bible tells us that it was God's idea. And so he says, and so he says, definition of definition of marriage, in chapter 1, verse 27, and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And further instructions there. And then in chapter 2, when the creation story is re restated and also given with further clarity, we might say, that he also pointed out something toward the end of the chapter, beginning with verse 20. Or he said, uh, Actually, 21, so the Lord caused man to fall into a deep sleep because he had said it's not good for man to be alone. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs, or actually a more correct translation of the Hebrew word is side, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the, then the Lord God made a woman from, that, from his side. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, flesh she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, or the old King James Version, cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And Jesus reaffirms that in the Gospels in Matthew 19 and in Mark 2 so that this is not just an Old Testament definition of marriage. It's reaffirmed by Jesus in the Gospels and also, again, in passages like Ephesians chapter 5. So God's design for marriage is one man, one woman, and it's meant to be monogamous as well as heterosexual. And as Jesus puts out, points it out in the gospel, he says, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Also, then, he's stating, it's meant to be permanent. We realize that that's God's design. And, of course, we know in real life, we haven't followed the design perfectly. I think uh, Jim and Teresa are going to address a very real relevant aspect there. Uh, God made allowances for, for example, divorce for certain circumstances. Some people would say, well, what about polygamy? Well, in the Old Testament, God allowed for polygamy, but he never authorized it. And whatever accommodations he made to our fallen condition, it was always within a heterosexual definition. So I'd like to think I'm preaching to the choir, if you will, 
But when we are confronted with bombardments of information in social media, etc., in fact, somebody said, whoever controls the media controls the culture. We might be shaken in what we might say tonight is, yeah, yeah, what you're saying I agree with, and I already know that, but will we hold firm when the external pressures come upon us from seemingly sophisticated sources that would suggest that you are holding to such an archaic, out-of-date view? Can we stand firm with uh, holding to the truth with grace and remembering that whatever definitions God gives us in terms of instructions or boundaries are always, always for our benefit. So that would be the fundamental aspect of heterosexual, monogamous, and permanent. And then the other aspect of it is the leaving, cleaving, and one flesh. And Margie, I'm wondering if you want to comment on that part. Yeah, I want to go back just a little bit to this first part about God's creation. In Genesis, when after God has made everything, and he looks it all over and says, it's not good for man to be alone. This is a really interesting comment to me. He's he is, um, God is recognizing the need for relationship for people. And so he says, well, I'll make a, a helper suitable for him. And when he tells us that he has made male and female, you know, he could have made another male, right? If, if the idea was just so the man didn't, wasn't alone, he could have created a buddy for him, another guy, um, but he did not do that. And twice he talks about this idea of making um, a helper to come alongside, someone especially suited for this man, a suitable helper for him, also something that completed him in a way that was not there before. So when he talks about the one flesh union and coming together, something new happens, a new entity is formed between these two who have come together like that. Matthew Henry, in his old-fashioned commentary, said something so beautiful. He said he didn't create woman from his feet to be trodden on by him, nor did he create the woman from his head to, be, to dominate him, but he created the woman from man's side closest to his heart. The, the, the one flesh part, the leaving and the cleaving and the one flesh, I think it's important for us to understand that the comprehensiveness of that. Leaving means that my primary loyalty is no longer to my parents. I should always honor and love them. But if in a marriage, either a spouse has their primary loyalty to the family of origin rather than to their spouse, you're violating the one flesh commitment. That's priority above every other human relationship. If somebody runs home to mom and dad or sticks up for them in the face of their spouse, the marriage is not going to do well. Uh, the cleaving is a strong Hebrew word, stick together like super glue. <laughs> and that means there's a strong loyalty that, that uh, I, I don't know all the lyrics to the song, but the one that came to mind was, stand by your man. <laughs> and it goes both ways, you know. <laughs> 
and some of the lyrics in there not, may not be supporting our argument here, but the loyalty factor is un, un, underscored in the cleaving part. The one flesh, I really think it's important that we understand it's not just the physical union. Uh, people can have a physical union outside of marriage that doesn't make it a marriage. Spirit, soul, and body need to be there. And I think that's an important aspect in why it says don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's not referring to marriage per se. It's in the context of a lot of arrangements, but certainly applies to, uh, to the marriage commitment that we should be marrying somebody who's like-minded about Jesus and their commitment to him as our Savior, our Lord. That's the only triangle that works in a marriage where he is the Lord of the relationship. And when I've done marriage counseling, I'll use a triangle where here's the man, here's the woman. The arrow back and forth indicates uh, whatever distance is between the two of them in a relationship. But there's also arrows going up to God or Jesus at the top. And the closer each of them moves toward that apex, what happens to the distance between them? It becomes closer or, or more minim, minim, minimalized. So, so that oneness you know, in the spirit is very important. And I think... I've got to be careful how I use this, but there needs to be an emotional or a psychological oneness. It doesn't mean they both love to go hunting and fishing necessarily, although when I spoke, uh, what's today, Thursday, when I spoke last Sunday at another church, uh, there was this couple that talked about they both loved hunting and fishing, and they went hunting and fishing on their honeymoon. But I shared, shared that in the... Uh, company of another couple who are committed Christians. They're good friends. They've been married for a long time. She said, camping would not have been my cup of tea, you know, for a honeymoon. But see, that didn't necessarily mean they didn't have psychological oneness. That can be in terms of showing an interest in each other's uh, activities, supporting them, you know, recreationally or hobbies or, or dreams that we come together and find the commonality and how we can strengthen each other, that's in the psychological dimension. And of course, the physical intimacy is meant to be there. Uh, that's part of it too. But I think it's important that we don't think of it just in terms of the physical. We've got too much of that emphasis in our society already. Margie, want to add something here? Not right now. Okay. The other part that I think is important because we're talking about what is marriage, how it's to be implemented, and why. Uh, the how, we have that in passages like the classic one would be Ephesians 5, where the man is meant to be the head of his marriage, like Christ is the head of the church. But he's also to, to do that in a way where he shows a great sense of caring, loving leadership, if you will. And the wife's responsibility is to submit herself to her husband in a voluntary way. That doesn't mean a husband says, you must submit. No, he's appealing to the wife that is... God is to align yourself under your husband's leadership. And sometimes when husbands don't rise to the occasion of leadership, women, for the sake of the home and everything, they want to fill in the vacuum. And so too often a man will become passive and a woman will wear the pants in the family and it just becomes exacerbated. And we lose the, the, the needed modeling of masculine roles and women's roles, and there becomes more and more, I think, a, 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 an invitation, not a guarantee, to create gender confusion or gender dysphoria. I think it leads to that. We need to think about the fact that God set it all up for our benefit, not for uh, eliminating our ability to, to express ourselves in healthy ways. He's defining it so that we will express ourselves in healthy ways. 
the uh, the aspect of I think the the program uh, or the uh, um, the ministry called Love and Respect builds on Ephesians five, uh, and I'm not saying that's the only way to go, but they they recognize that the roles there are emphasizing the need for a man to love his wife because that suggests maybe that's the biggest area of neglect in showing love to his wife in a language that she understands it. And then the, the difficulty sometimes for a wife to say, I have a hard time respecting this man because he can be such a jerk. So those realities are there and they have to be uh, dealt with in, in the most constructive way possible. That's, that's part of the how. And, and I have this little statement I'm going to make that not everybody's going to agree with. I'm not saying on this panel, but I'm hearing more and more of a popular desire to minimize the onus that goes with the word submit. And I'm not saying this is always the reason it's done, but I hear in different contexts that because it says in verse 521 in Ephesians, we just submit ourselves to one another. So that means husbands, you submit yourselves to your wives, and wives, you submit yourself to as husbands. So we all submit ourselves to each other. But the context rules. It tells us in that passage how submission is to be implemented. Wives to husbands, children to parents, employees to employers. It's really kind of a uh, contradiction of terms to say we both submit ourselves to each other. There has to be a chain of command. It's either official or it's done by strength of personality. Somebody's going to be in charge. And we have to recognize what God's design is for that. And if we do it rightly, it will come out well. That has to do with the how, and that doesn't exhaust the explanation. But, but in addition to the how, and also, by the way, <laughs> First Peter 3 says, Husbands, you need to show consideration to your wife. If you want your prayers to be answered, you take proper care of her and treat her with the respect that she needs. I'm, of course, paraphrasing it, but it means the man has a responsibility to lead in a way that's responsibly caring for the woman who was created from his side. What about the why of marriage? I would, I would say that the scriptures teach that there are three basic reasons for marriage. One is relationship. It's a special relationship. There's nothing like marriage between a man and a woman physically and in other ways too. We recognize that women bring a certain wiring, <laughs> the way they think and feel, and men respond differently. We joke about it as, what do we say? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Uh, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti, and all of this sort of thing. We recognize that the wiring of the two of us is different, and as Margie pointed out, it's complementary. So the relationship factor, which we can't expand on, but that's an important aspect. The other part is procreation. And somebody may say, well, yeah, in the beginning it says be fruitful and multiply. We've accomplished that, haven't we? Well, I would say, really, have we? In perhaps certain parts of the world, there may be a population explosion, but there is not such a thing going on in the West. Europe has fallen in just about every country below the replacement rate. And in some cases, it's now irrecoverable. That's why Germany has had to import people to operate their auto production plants because they don't have enough employees of the working age. They've lost that replacement rate. In the US, we're right at 2.1, which is the break-even point. And you know why? Because of immigration. Along that line, 
we have to ask ourselves, are we committed, I'm talking about as a Christian culture, are we committed to the role of procreation? Um, in the Middle East, <laughs> one of the imams said, we will defeat the West in the womb. They plan on having a new generation that's going to be strong enough in numbers to overwhelm our culture. Whether that's right or wrong, they recognize the power of influence through reproduction. I don't think in America we embrace that anymore. Now, granted, there are people who cannot have children. We're not talking about that. But when young couples choose not to have children because they think there's too many people in the, in the world, we're not thinking about what it's going to take to preserve our Western culture. We're thinking about it in global terms, but not in practical, specific terms. And again, that is an area where we have to personally examine our hearts before the Lord and say, what is the responsible thing for me to do? There are some people who would say, I don't want to be inconvenienced by children. But it's interesting that I watch some people, whether or not they have chosen to have kids or not, they're very happy to have two or three dogs that they have to walk at least twice a day in whatever organs weather is and clean up after the dogs. And I'm thinking, hmm, it's an interesting trade-off we have here. If they're doing a replacement of pets for children, and I'm trying to qualify our comments here, but procreation, coming back to it, is part of God's initial creation mandate. And I think we need to be careful to say, well, we've fulfilled it. We have not done so in the West. We're losing it. The other part is representation, and that is in Ephesians 5, because it points out that we have uh, a parallel between Christ and the church and marriage, and I think we need to realize our, as Christians, our church, uh, I mean, our marriages are meant to model the, uh, the beauty of Christ as the head of the church, the bride and the groom. And I think that's all we need to say about that. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to say some, something about the passage in Ephesians 2, when it's, because it's bounded on both ends by this concept that the reason we follow these family rules that God has put down is out of reverence for him and because we want to honor him. We want his name to be honored in our lives, and we do this by our behavior. So in your family right now, if you just stop and think about it, you have some family rules in your family, and you want your children to follow these. You want... Um, growing up young adults to understand this is, this is the way we do it in our family. And it's important because you're part of our family and this is identity for us. And it's the same way for us when we come into the Lord's family. He has family systems in place. And in order to walk with him and enjoy his blessing, we do these things. We, we do the submission thing we agree to his family rules because he's made us his, and we're part of that. For women, you know, in making us different than men, making something unique in the woman, part of the unique capacity of women is their flexibility. You know, we can adjust on the shortest possible notice. You, uh, a plan will change. And a woman can go in her brain, ching, 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 and she has just reordered 
a whole lot of things in a row. That's a capacity that God has given us that's very unique. And it's a suitable, when the Lord was going to make this suitable helper, someone who would come alongside, that was a gift that he gave to us to be able to do that. But all these things that we do are not because they're big rules. It's because we're part of the family. We're part of God's family, and we want to honor him in the way we walk with him. And just remember the verse in Ephesians that says, remember, it's the Lord Christ that we serve. He's the one who helps keep us on track in all this. Right. Amen. Wow, that was really rich, guys. I just, just to kind of sum up, which was that which was so beautifully communicated, um, the definition of marriage is an Old and New Testament concept that John pointed out scriptures in both. Um, we talked about the importance of leaving and cleaving, how to implement marriage and why, and w what Margie just kind of wrapped the whole thing up in a bow with was why we, why we abide by the scripture, what our motivation should be. It should be to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Very beautiful, guys. Um, do you guys have any, does anyone wanna, wanna comment on that before we move on to the next question? Have anything to add or? I, I don't, I, that was, I was taking notes. It was very, very well done. <laughs> Amen. Well, let's move on to the next question then. Um, so the next question is, we, there's actually two questions, one for Kim and one for I. Uh, my question is, what does it mean to be unequally yoked, and why is it important to marry a believer? And that was kind of touched on by John Margie, but I'm going to go into it in a bit more depth. So... Um, the phrase unequally yoked comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And um, I'm going to read the whole section around that verse, um, but I want to start by just reading the first verse, and I'm going to read from the ESV in case you're following along and you're like, that's not what it says in my Bible. It's because you have a different translation, but that's okay. Um, so I'm going to read that first verse and just talk about... Um, for those of us that don't understand animal husbandry, and you're like, what the heck is a yoke, you know? Uh, it, we're just going to unpack that a little bit. So um, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and uh, he, says, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, so there's, there's where it is in the Bible. Now let's talk about what a yoke is. So for those of you that are not farmers or don't have animals, don't actually plow, a yoke is what we might call a plow harness. Um, it's basically a contraption. It can be made of wood or metal or leather, but you put it around an animal's neck and it's got, you know, like a, an ox or a, a draft horse or a donkey and it's got little attachment points for uh, rope or, or leather strips, and you can tow a plow behind your, your donkey or your ox. So some of these yokes um, actually were made so you could hitch up two animals right side by side, so double your horsepower, right? All you guys, are anyway, uh, <laughs> twice the horsepower or twice the ox power or, or animal power, anyway. So if you were to put two different animals in this yoke, like say an, an ox and a donkey, or an ox and a draft horse, but, 
we'll just go with ox and donkey because there's a biblical reference for that, right? Your, your ox is going to be, you know, wide. It's going to be powerful. Your donkey is going to be, a, you know, a little bit slighter, probably a little bit taller. And so your yoke that's supposed to rest on the shoulders of each animal is going to be like, you know, canted like that. Not only that, but you have, um, you've got an ox. An ox is a really powerful animal, and it's going to tend to muscle out the donkey, kind of drag that, that donkey uh, as, it, as it plows. The donkey, we, I don't know if you know anything about donkeys, they can be really stubborn, so it might just refuse to move. The donkey also has been known to bite and kick the ox until the thing just goes crazy. So um, God basically said, don't unequally yoke animals. That, that's, in verse, that's in Deuteronomy 22.10. He commands against doing that. And the reason why, it's just inhumane. It, it results in stress and damage to both animals and actually hinders the work of plowing. If you can imagine the ox dragging the donkey, the doggy, donkey biting and kicking the ox and just, you get, you know, you don't get nice straight rows to put your seeds in. You get a, a whacked out um, row. So that's, that's going to hinder your goal of actually plowing your field. So with that in mind, I'm going to actually read the little section surrounding uh, 2 Corinthians 14 um, just to add a little bit more depth, but also um, to maybe bring a little bit more context. I think that's super important when we're in the Word of God. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians uh, 6.14 through uh, 7.1, and this is out of the ESV. So he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? So that word Belial is a synonym for the devil. Um, Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And I'll just push pause there and say, those are all rhetorical questions. The answer should be obvious. It should be none. There is no... There is no... Uh, fellowship between light and darkness. There is no agreement between uh, Christ and the devil. There is no agreement between lawlessness and righteousness. They just, they do not go together. Okay, so unpause. Um, picking this up in um, the second half of verse 16. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, second half of verse 16. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. And that's speaking to believers, right? As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from, the, from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then this is the last verse here in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that's the passage that um, surrounds that, um, that verse. And um, just to kind of add some explanation to the passage, what Paul's doing in this section in, in, as a part of his letter of exhortation and correction to the Corinthian church, his second letter, is basically saying in light of the fact that believers are a new creation, and now I'm reaching back into chapter five, and just for sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he reminds us that if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. 
the new has come, right? Um, in light of the fact that if we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, we're a new creation. In, in, in chapter 5, he also says we're reconciled to God in Christ, meaning that our old relationship with God that was broken by our sin nature and our sinful acts both contribute, right, was, was reconciled, was repaired by, by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and he, he paid that, uh, that penalty of sin and uh, he gave us his righteousness. So uh, anyway, in light of the fact that we are a new creation and we've been reconciled to God in Christ, we're to live lives of holiness. Like he says at the end of um, that verse, um, pardon me, uh, verse seven, verse one, he says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, right? Lives of holiness, um, that doesn't mean perfection per se, but what it does mean is separation, separation, set, being set apart for a purpose, just like you wouldn't use your toothbrush to clean your toilet, right? It's set apart for a purpose to clean your mouth. God's saying, you're now set apart for a purpose, and you, the purpose that I have for you is a glorious one. Uh, it's, a, it's a purpose to grow in the things of the Lord and to, to be blessed and glorify me. And so um, what he wants us to do is live lives of separation that are holy, that are distinct from um, the deceived and uh, sinful pagan culture that these uh, Corinthians had been saved out of. Like John was saying, the culture is going one direction. We're to live distinctly from the culture. Um, lives that are full, uh, lived in full agreement with their new identity in Christ, right? We're supposed to be pursuing a Christ um, very much like, like Margie said, um, um, to bring him honor, uh, as, a, as a response of love to the one who gave up so much for us. And so his word to the Corinthians here to not be unequally yoked, like John pointed out, is, is because he wanted to see them blessed. He wanted to see that, that marriage triangle that he talked about really work. He wanted to see two people that had a relationship with Christ uh, drawing nearer to the Lord and drawing nearer to each other and, and, um, and being a, a picture of Christ in the church on earth that would, that would just bring blessing and, um, and would be a, a correct and a, a good example of what, what seems to be almost a lived-out parable right, in the, in the lives of the believer, um, uh, you know, that, that represents the Lord. So um, anyway, getting on to the, my next point was uh, one application for this teaching of being unequally yoked, which we sort of already have drawn this thing, is the area of intimate um, and influential relationships in the life of a believer. You can talk about business relationships, but since we're confining this thing to marriage for tonight, we're going to just stick with that. A marriage being the greatest example of an intimate and, and um, influential relationship, right? So husband and wife, like John said, are joined together. They become one flesh in God's sight. And John, John kind of stole a little bit of my thumber, thunder, but it's okay. It's the word of God. We can stir us, each other up by way of reminder, right? Um, Lord Jesus affirms that word and emphasizes the seriousness of that, of that uh, covenant, that covenantal bond in his sight in Matthew 19 and so as believers, we're not supposed to seek to enter marriage with an unbeliever. Like the unequally yoked ox and the donkey, right? They're going to have difficulty, and that, that work of plowing the Lord's field, so to speak, um, will be hindered, right? So all that said, 
somewhere, there's probably somebody who's a believer that says, oh my gosh, well, that's the right way to do it. Then what am I supposed to do? My spouse doesn't believe in Jesus. What, I'm stuck. I, maybe, I should, maybe I should call my lawyer and, and cut this thing off because I want to glorify the Lord. Well, fortunately, there's another passage that gives specific instructions on how you're to proceed if you find yourself in this situation. How do you proceed if um, you're a believer and now all of a sudden you've heard all this and you're like, what do I do? Um, here's what the Lord would say to you. Um, this is Paul writing the Corinthians in the first letter. And this is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 through 16. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce, divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the believing partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the, the writing, the instruction of, the, of Apostle Paul is really clear. You should stay with your unbelieving spouse if they'll consent to stay with you, if they're not like, I hate you, you're a Christian, I'm out of here, right? If, they, if they're like, if they still want to be with you, and, and perhaps the Lord will use you um, to lead them to Christ. Um, just kind of in closing here, um, and I'll reach back into um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, Paul speaks of having received the ministry of reconciliation having received the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel. And uh, he makes an appeal to the Corinthians as an ambassador of Christ to be reconciled to God. And I would say to the, the, the believer with an unbelieving spouse, man, this is, this is your primary in, um, area of ministry, of taking up that ministry of reconciliation, being the person that gets to model Christ and share Christ and be an example of Christ in the life of your unbelieving spouse and, and, uh, and share with them the message of reconciliation to the Lord. So, so Kim's going to tackle her question next. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually a pretty good segue talking about how to deal with an unbelieving spouse. It's kind of related in a way. Um, so I'm going to let my lovely wife um, go ahead and answer this question, honey. What should you do when your spouse starts pursuing beliefs outside the church or extra biblical teachings? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to add one tack on one thing to what you were talking about before. Um, Just as a word to people who are single. Hmm. Um, That's, um, if you don't want to be married to an unbeliever, don't date an unbeliever. (laughs) Um, I, it may, what, I mean, kind of maybe should be obvious, but maybe isn't, and, and that can be difficult. But um, obviously, the Bible doesn't have anything specifically to say about dating. Um, dating wasn't a thing. They had arranged marriages in the Bible, and sometimes I think that's a great idea because I have kids. And <laughs> But... Um, you know, dating is meant to be that courtship of trying to find out whether that this person is a suitable life partner for you. And that's kind of the process 
in our culture to kind of determine that. And if that person it, that you're interested in is not saved, that person is not for you, at least right now. And that is going to save yourself a whole truckload of heartache and headache um, if you just don't go down that road. Okay, so I'm going to go and answer my question now. Okay, so it was kind of a, a little bit of a vague question in a way because it could have a lot of possibilities. Pursuing beliefs outside of the church. Well, I mean, that can be, there's lots of things that aren't addressed by the church. And what does it mean? What are we talking about with extra biblical teaching? You know, so, I mean, that can encompass a lot of things. It could be like heresy, false religion, political differences, denominations, worldly philosophies, um, progressive church. It could be a lot of different things. So, um, what came to mind as I was contemplating this and praying about how to answer this question. Um, I felt that 1 Peter 3 was a really good passage to go to because I think it gives some principles that are, can apply to whatever situation you find yourself in. If your spouse is an unbelieving spouse or is starting to explore other things that would be maybe heretical or um, one thing that I've seen a lot and has been kind of an ongoing Thing that kind of has been coming up in Christian marriages, even in, in our church, um, where there is this battle between um, those who take a literal or natural um, inerrant word of God position regarding church teaching and doctrine and those who take a more progressive view of scripture and where the interpretation is based on more like philosophy or feelings or redefinition of core doctrine or views that are like private interpretations that don't take into account the full counsel of God's word. There's just a lot that those are kind of things that are encompassed in this idea of the progressive church where you hear about these churches where you're like, where are you getting that idea from? I don't think that's in God's word and embracing of some worldly stuff because increasingly friendship with the world means bending from the plain teaching of God's word and embracing behaviors and beliefs that are contrary to the Bible. And I've seen this personally be a wedge in some Christian marriages. Um, so I, I've seen that kind of become a thing that's kind of creeped in. So maybe they don't feel, one of the, um, that spouse doesn't feel like, oh, I'm not walking away from the Lord. I'm just becoming more open-minded. And, you know, and then you've got a spouse who's very concerned about the spiritual well-being of their spouse. I can think of an example of a couple in, in the church who were grappling with that very issue. So, um, so let's just dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, like the braiding of hair or wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. 
You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, so there's some things to unpack here. So in... This, in the first six verses, there's a lot of instruction for us wives of how to um, deal with our husbands. It's probably, I mean, I read one commentary, and it was a commentary, you know, it was a guy, and he says, it's because the women have the harder job. I don't know if that's true, but maybe it is. So the encouragement here, what is the call for us women in this situation? So say we have a husband who is being, what is being described in verse one as being disobedient to the word. So disobedient can be unbelieving, that word can mean unbelieving, or it can mean just disobeying the word. So that can encompass a lot of things. Um, What does it say? We're supposed to be submissive to our own husbands. And that word submissive, just like Margie was talking about, gets a bad rap in, um, in the world. And because I think it's misunderstood. So submission is a military term, it means to come under the rank of someone else. It says nothing about our character or value or any of those things. It means that there is a divine order, just like John and Margie were talking about, that has been set up by the Lord where the men are supposed to lead their families. And that is what they're, they're supposed to do, and that's a big job. And us women, we are supposed to respect and respond to that in in a submissive way, not in a subservient way, but in a, I'm going to honor you and I'm going to show you respect and follow your lead. And I think that's important. And I think it's important because God's word says it in several places. Um, It says that they would be um, one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So, The call is for us to respect and not to nag. Us women, we want to, we have opinions, man. And we'd like to express those opinions. How many wives could say, you know what? I've accomplished nothing in my nagging. I'll I'll own it. I've accomplished nothing in my nagging. I accomplish a lot in being quiet and praying. Because if I am overly, well, (laughs) If I'm overly free with my opinion, I'm not giving the Lord a chance to do the work and I'm showing um, my husband that I don't respect him um, as the leader of our house. So what does it mean to, what does submission not mean in in this instance? Remember, we're talking about in the context of he's disobeying the word. It does not mean, submitting does not mean participating in the sin. So if they're disobeying the word and it's in a sinful in the sinful way, I don't have to participate because it's sin. It does not mean that I can't talk to them. You know, I don't. It doesn't mean I have to remain completely silent. I could ask questions. I can engage them in conversation. It's not like I have to like sit here and go nothing. Um, and so I could ask. You know, like, where do you find that idea in scripture? Where you know. Where you get that from? What you know? What are you thinking about? You know, why are you thinking in that way? Or, um, and it also means I don't have to agree with what they're believing or doing. Remembering that I obey the Lord and His Word first. Okay, so and then verses two through six give us some additional things of what we should be doing. We should be respectful. 
we should embrace humility. The verse um, about, in verse four it says, our, well, before it says our adornment shouldn't be external, but it should be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. The word gentle just means to be humble. Um, am I willing to put myself in that humble place of going to the Lord with, the, with what's going on with my husband? And that, that means that I'm not trying to fix it, which I think is important. And so, um, and then when it says to be, have a quiet spirit, that means to keep your seat. Literally, it means keep your seat. And I like that because sometimes I get, you know, we get worked up as women and we want to like jump in and we want to be, ah, I'm worried and bothered and, you know, but if in my quiet, and if to have a quiet spirit means that I keep my seat and I allow for the Lord to do the work. It says to be like Sarah. We give an example of Sarah. So Sarah in the Old Testament was married to Abraham, who is the father of faith. And Abraham was not always a really great husband. In fact, I can think of a couple of really, really bad examples of how he was as a husband. In um, Genesis chapter... Opinion? Yeah, yeah. He 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 wasn't it wasn't good, and I can say that he's been dead a long time, and I'm not married to him. Um, so yeah, in Genesis chapter twelve, the guy is like, um, Pharaoh's going to think that you are really beautiful, and he's going to kill me to get to you. So could you tell them that you're my sister? Which is was technically true. He was her half his half sister, but still, come on. So she gets. Taken into Pharaoh's harem. The Lord totally rescues her. But there is nothing in scripture where she's like, uh, Abraham, this is not a good idea. You'd think he would have learned after the first time, but the doofus does it again in chapter 20. And she gets taken into Abimelech, the king of Gerar's harem. And again, we don't see Sarah being like, uh, Abraham, this is not a good idea. She doesn't say any of those things. And from what we see recorded in the New Testament about her, there is a following heart that Sarah has for her husband, even when he's being a knucklehead, which is great. (laughs) It's a great example. And it seems to be because there's a trust that Sarah learned to have, not of her husband, because we saw he was a knucklehead. Her trust and why she was not frightened by any fear was because she was trusting in the Lord. So this is the example that I have, that we have, of a wife who, in this, in this circumstance, the husband is disobedient to the Lord. And the response of the wife is to keep her seat, to be humble, and to win over her husband by her chaste and means innocent and respectful behavior by showing him, continuing to show him respect and continuing to show him honor, that that would be how he would be won over. Um, I love this quote by David. I love this. It says, a wife's submission is a powerful expression, powerful expression of her trust in God. 
Trusting the Lord with my husband means that I am allowing the Lord to give you much better. Not um, and I'm showing that I'm willing to do things the Lord's way. I don't have to always understand why the Lord prescribes the things the way that he does in his word to still choose to follow it, which I think is important. I don't always have to even agree with what God's word says to choose to follow it because God knows thing, things that I don't know, obviously, because he's the creator of the universe. And if he says something, I need to trust that he knows what he's talking about. So what do I get to do if I'm not going to nag him and bother him and try and, you know, push him in the right direction? I pray. I pray, 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 pray. And I trust. And I press into my relationship with the Lord because the ability to walk this out is a direct result of where, if drawing that power from the Lord. He wants to give me the power to be humble, to stay quiet and speak when it's appropriate, and to trust him with my husband. Marcus is not walking in disobedience to the Lord. Just to make that clear, we're good. Um, but if he were, I'd want to um, have the grace to walk that, this out. What does the um, word say here for husbands? They get one verse. Wait, but, can, I, can I say something? Okay, I got, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was like, it was really good. I was thinking, honey, this is related, but only related because the keeping your seat part. Remember when Mary was at uh, the feet of Jesus, right? She was seated at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's trying to overdo everything, frustrated. You know, my sister won't help me, but Jesus said that one thing is needful, and Mary's chosen the better part. And I think that just kind of sums up the heart is like being near Jesus, going to the Lord, being at his feet, and that, that's, that's a huge part of, the, of, of humility and I know it's, that's not specifically a marriage passage, but I just thought about that, um, that example that Mary said. So. Yeah, everything in our life to really be able to walk it out, to walk out what God says in his word requires that intimacy with Jesus, staying close and abiding in him, or we will lack in that ability because none of those, these things come naturally to us. They go completely against what our flesh would tell us to do. So, okay, verse seven says, I'll reread it. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So, husbands, what do you guys get to do? Well, your job is probably even more difficult. The first thing it says to dwell with them or some translation says live with them. Um, so continue. So we're dealing with this situation of a woman kind of going, veering off towards something that is not biblical. Continue to dwell with them and be close, you know, to continue to want that closeness, even though that's difficult when you're not on the same page. And it says to dwell with in an understanding way. So seek to understand talk, ask, and listen. Many problems with a wife getting off track could be that her husband is not engaged to know where she's at spiritually 
um, until things are far off track. So husbands, I would say, you know, as a preventative measure, do you know this, are you kind of tapping in to know the spiritual temperature of your house? Do you know where your wife is? You know, do you know where she's reading the word? Is she reading the word? Are you taking time to pray with her? You're gonna head off a lot of potential problems if you are taking your role as the, you know, the spiritual leader of the household seriously. Um, you wouldn't have a command to dwell in an understanding way if it was easy to understand. So women are not always easy to understand. We're a mystery. It's so fun. And you guys get to spend a whole lifetime getting to know us <laughs> and how we tick. And it's and women are, are more, I think, not, not to say that men are simple. I don't think that that's true. I just think that women are incredibly emotionally complex sometimes. And the things that we're thinking about and feeling can be a lot and probably a lot for men to take in sometimes and understand. So it's the seeking to understand that is important. And women have some like realistic expectations of your husbands, please. They don't speak the same language as us. They just don't always understand. But it's the seeking to understand. I think that is really important. Um, husbands are called to sanctify their wives, um, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. And this is in Ephesians 5, 26. So husbands, you are called to engage with your wife in spiritual things. That is your job. You're supposed to do that. So there's a loving correction that can be provided there. But let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's Colossians 4 verse 6. There, in that verse, it says that it, and to dwell with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Okay. There's a couple of ways that you can take that, and I read it different things in different commentaries, but I'm just going to say that I don't like being thought of as weak until I think about it, and I realize I am weaker than my husband in a couple of key ways. Physically, he's a lot stronger than me. So that's, you know, that's just reality. And honestly, he's emotionally stronger than me. Um, there are I am more prone as a woman, and I think that this is probably not necessarily for every single woman out there, but I think it's a generalized statement that is probably most of the time true. I am far, that women are far more prone to making emotional decisions or being swayed from the truth because of how we feel about something, which is why men and women are wired differently, and that is something to be celebrated and not something to be looked down on that's a it's a good thing Amen. Yeah. yeah it's you know like I'm I'm not the same as my husband I have things that I am stronger in and he has things that he's stronger in and one of them is you know cutting to the chase he's good at cutting to the chase and cutting through the things and getting down to brass tacks and that's a good thing um so and then men are also admonished to honor their wives as a fellow heir and so that their prayers will not be hindered. So, honor meaning to cherish. So, men, are you cherishing your wife? Are you taking seriously where she's at spiritually? Um, yeah, that's what you're called to do. So, what are you guys supposed to do? All of those things, but also remember that the battle is done on our knees. We pray for our spouses who might be 
off base with something. And we need to stay close to the Lord ourselves. So here's our final little final admonition from Colossians chapter three. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3, 12 through 16. Wow, that's great, honey. Good job. Does anybody else have anything they want to add or any thoughts that came up during? um... On the humorous side, uh, you were talking about we're wired differently and someone on the humorous side. If one of you in a marriage thought exactly the same way as the other person, one of you isn't necessary. And I have never seen a marriage where they were in danger of that happening. (laughs) (laughs) That was Ruth Graham that said that. That Ruth Graham who said that. Oh, did she? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I was thinking about um, kind of what Margie said and what you said were different and how, you know, um, that's part of God's design and, uh, and it's sanctifying to, to minister to someone who's different than you. It's sanctifying to have a relationship with somebody who's different than you. And um, it's also a, a safeguard, you know. We can become quite arrogant in thinking that, you know, we're... I hope I'm, not, I'm rabbit trailing a little bit, but I hope to bring it back here. Okay. We can think that we are, you know, the be all and end all, and that other person just needs to get their stuff together. You know, that can be the the attitude, and it's kind of an attitude of pride and, and self worship a little bit. So it it does take humility, and patience, and love. It does take the fruits of the spirit to to minister to each other and uh, to recognize each other's differences and. And, and, and see the, the value um, the, and the, that our completers bring and our, you know, in my, in my case, my completer brings to me. And um, I think it's really easy to see that, but, you know, I can see, like, it, there's times, there's always going to be times in a marriage where, you know, that's a challenge. And so I just think it's, it's good um, you pointed out that there are different requirements because we are generally made different by the Lord, you know, and... and uh, so I thought that was really good. Okay. Well, if nobody else. So uh, we're going to move on to our, our final question. Can here. I tell one little story here that would put an exclamation point on, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, but an exclamation point on keeping the Lord first is that uh, when I was dating Teresa, uh, we hadn't been going together too long, but I thought, boy, she's a lot better woman than I thought. And uh, and I just was falling heads over, he- heels over, and she comes in and says, well, uh, I, I always say you're going to, she dumped me. <laughs> yeah. she, did, she didn't dump me, she just didn't, she thought she was too broken for me. She, she liked me, but she didn't want to give me. Uh, what do you want? Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't want to give him somebody so broken. <laughs> right. I 
I thought, he's too nice of a guy. I think I better just end this. <laughs> so I'm driving down the highway there, and I can remember exactly where it was. It was right where Fred Myers is. And it was the closest thing to the Lord ever uh, uh, speaking to me. I mean, it was almost uh, audible. <laughs> but so I'm driving down there, and I was feeling just terrible. I mean, like physically sick type terrible, you know. And uh, uh, the Lord uh, says to me, uh, he, he says, um, well, how, how, how do you feel now? And I said, oh, I feel miserable, Lord. And by this time, I, I pulled over because I couldn't even drive anymore, you know. I, said, I feel real miserable, you know. And, and he says, well, that's how I feel when you think, when you uh, love a woman more than you love me. And I just, I just melted. I mean, I, I just... Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, I I get it, Lord, <laughs> I get it. Okay, hard way to get here, but I got it now. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. you can you can hang on By to that. The way, um, I was back the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. And Thirty-two years later, here they are. <laughs> Amen. Okay, well, our last uh, question for Jim and Teresa. Uh, is what does the Bible say about divorce and what does God tell us about remarrying? So they're going to answer this and uh, we're all going to give them the floor. Go ahead and take it away. Yeah, I'll do that. So first of all, I mean, uh, uh, I want to, uh, I mean, I'm going to read some scriptures and go to the scriptures, but the scriptures can can go into your head, and it's a lot harder to get him down to your heart. Well, how do you, does he do that? I don't know if he does this for everyone, but he gives us all these experiences in our life, good and bad. And I can tell you that more of what I intellectually sucked up got down here from actually some, some of the most difficult times. Well, I just explained one. <laughs> you know, and so uh, I think that the the uh, the Lord speaks in both both our experiences and the Word of God, and so I mean the Word of God is a straight stick, but you got to get it down to your heart, and so uh, I'm I'm going to go through some scriptures and then Teresa will go through some of our experiences because they relate to these because we've been through that we've been through this <clears throat> so anyhow in divorce uh, in Genesis to Moses uh, I couldn't find it if it's in there I can't find it now does that mean that uh, people that uh, People didn't split up in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't know. But uh, you could certainly assume that possibly that was the case because once you get to the law, you know, Mo Moses, 
he has all kinds of uh, things about, particularly about adultery uh, and uh, and divorce as well. And uh, w one of the things I noticed, though, was that in the law, uh, God didn't prohibit divorce, uh, and also he he didn't prohibit slavery. <laughs> uh, he regulated them. And uh, by the way, that was the big argument when, uh, in fact, it was one of my uh, ancestors had a famous debate on, it was a, 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 an abolitionist against a Southern uh, Democrat. And uh, the, uh, my relative was the Southern Democrat and he was arguing for slavery. He was also a minister. Well, so was the other guy. The abolitionist was a minister. It was minister against minister, and they both used the Bible to to, uh, to uh, buttress their positions. And the cornerstone of the arguments was that God didn't prohibit slavery. He just regulated it. Well, it's that way with divorce, too. And... I'm not telling you what you have to think about it, but that's kind of what it was. And so I, I didn't spend a lot of time going through all the different laws because most of them were regulations uh, of, uh, well, we'll see later. Jesus told them, he gave them those regulations because of their hardness of their heart. <laughs> uh, and so uh, and we'll get to that here in Matthew uh, 19, 1 through 12. And I'm, I'm going to give you, if, if people are taking notes, uh, Luke 16, 18, and Mark 10, 1 through 10. Uh, looks to me like they're all talking about the same experience they had with Jesus uh, on the subject of divorce. And can you hold this there? I'm going to Matthew first, and uh, uh, it's kind of a long passage, and so I'm just going to read. I'm going to keep, you know, just read the things that are relevant to what we're talking about, or most relevant, I should say. <clears throat> in starting in verse three, it says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, so they... Uh, Um, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Because of the hardness of, the, uh, of, because of hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and 
uh, marries another commits adultery. Uh, and uh, the, the thing is, is that we ha- if we want to understand marriage, we have to, what we did earlier, is go back to the beginning. That's what Jesus told us to do. And uh, the, the, so the, uh, there's an exception in there for adultery, and that was uh, discussed, I mean, not discussed, it's, it was legislated in the Mosaic Law quite a bit. I mean, there was a lot to say about adultery, and uh, God uh, regulated it and punished it <laughs> uh, severely. And by the way, just as an aside, uh, in particularly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, uh, adultery and idolatry were almost synonymous. And uh, and I was sitting there trying to wonder why is it synonymous? Well, he says here he made, God made them one. God is one. And dividing either one of them is uh, uh, reckless. <laughs> so if we go to, and so when, when we were, uh, so in Luke sixteen eighteen, because there, I mean, uh, we had grounds for our divorce, <laughs> both of us. And, uh, but people would say to us that, oh, you can't get married because, and they'd go to this passage uh, in uh, Luke 16, or no, 18, 16, 18. And, and uh, every everyone, and he does say everyone here. So I mean that doesn't look good. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman uh, divorced for her from her husband commits adultery. So there was a lot of people telling us that well. You can't get married; you'll be committing adultery. You can't get remarried; you, you, you're going you're, uh, you're committing adultery. But the thing is, is that even though two of those, Mark and Luke, uh, do not have the exception for adultery, uh, it, I mean, it was in the law. Adultery was punished by stoning, <laughs> and so, you know, the the, um, the the thing is, is that the, uh, you have to ask yourself the question: well, Why did they they not have the exception for adultery? Because it makes sense what Jesus said in the Matthew. And it could be that, you know, it said in Matthew also that the Pharisees were trying to stir things up, you know, and to separate him from his followers. 
Well, it could be that they're speaking, that they remember this as, and we're speaking it in a general sense, you know, that, uh, that the, the divorcing that was going on back in Jesus' day was just as much as today. I mean, it was rampant, and almost all of it was for, you know, any and all reasons, right. And uh, so it could be that what they're thinking, they're just looking at it in a general sense. I don't know what it is, uh, you know, and I can't tell you for sure, but I think that that's probably what was going on here because uh, because it was so it was so widely uh, widely practiced at that time that you know they uh, uh, they they didn't feel like they had to put in the exception for adultery because I mean even though the stoning had slowed down from the time of the Babylonian captivity, they were still stoning people for adultery. And so, anyhow, uh, so then remarriage is, uh, that kind of segues into the remarriage, and if we go to, we already went there once, First uh, Corinthians seven. It says, "But if the unbeliever, this is in uh, seven fifteen. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That word, enslaved." is, uh, I'm not a Greek expert, maybe John could help me out, but if something is derived from another word, doesn't that mean it's essentially the same? Or is that not true? Yeah. Uh, So, because that word is derived from uh, verse 39, in verse 39, that same chapter, it says, a wife is bound to her husband, as long as he lives, but if uh, her husband dies, she is free uh, to uh, to be married uh, with whomever he, she he wishes. Only in the Lord. <laughs> That's only in the Lord. So. The the thing is that if they're not kissing cousins, because what you're because the word here is uh, duablo or whatever it is, you know, and there's different derivatives of that word, and uh, and I'm not saying that's the exact same word, but uh, I know in some translations they use the the same word, but I have to say. That is the uh, this verse gave us some level of comfort when we were getting beat down, thinking that you well we got to be single for the rest of our life by other people on that uh, previous one. So anyhow, 
I, I had I was a single dad of four, teaching high school math in the morning at a Christian academy and and, and running a store six days a week, and uh, the uh, uh, I was busy, but I had enough time to get into the Word of God, <laughs> and I said, well, I and I, I found I saw that scripture and I thought, well, you know. Maybe I, I can get married again without committing adultery. But uh, uh, I went to uh, uh, Genesis 24. And he, Jesus referenced uh, the, he says, but in the beginning it was not so. Well, in the beginning it was, you know, the big question is how do you find a mate? Well, it doesn't matter whether it's the first time or second time, you got the same dilemma. And the, um, in the beginning, Adam didn't have to worry about it. I mean, there wasn't any, there wasn't any other choices. <laughs> and by the way, you notice he put Adam to sleep. So that, I, I, this is what I believe anyway, that, that he put him to sleep so that he could not take take any claim for it you know in other words this had nothing to do with it and uh but we in modern days have the dilemma that there's um you know six billion people how do you find the eve for me and the adam for her and so i i and I heard this from someone else, so I'm not going to take credit for it, but I, I made, it uh, made perfect sense to me, and it also gave us an opportunity when we were going, we were going to test the Lord uh, to make sure that uh, this Fleece. was... What? Fleeces. Lots of fleeces. Yeah, especially her. <laughs> but... <laughs> So in 24, there were six things in here. What it is, is it's a story of, I'm not going to read it because it's too long, but uh, Abraham was send, sending out his servant to find a bride for uh, Isaac. And uh, the, uh, and I'm just going to read, read the six things that I saw. Maybe there's something else in there, but these are the six things that I saw. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit in the beginning so we find out what he's doing and how important this is. So this is how he's selecting a bride for the promised son. I mean, this is his son that was promised that his descendants would be like the stars. And, and so it had to have been important for him. And so it says, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, uh, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear to the Lord your God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell but uh, will go to my country and my kindred 
and take a wife for my son. And uh, so in verse 9, he says, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. You know, I mean, so number one is pretty uh, straightforward, is that, Lord, I'm going to do it right this time. Because the first time, I I wasn't a Christian. I was a hippie. And had a hippie marriage. And uh, once I found out what I had to do here, I found out the first time around I didn't do one thing right. Not even one. <laughs> you would think you'd do one by accident. I mean, yeah. you know. <clears throat> and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Uh, show steadfast love for your master Abraham. He prayed. Number three. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar, and I will drink, and you shall, uh, and, and who shall say, uh, drink, and I will water your camels. Uh, let her be the one whom uh, you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Um, by this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Uh, there's the fleece. <laughs> uh, number four, the man bowed his head and worshiped to the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness towards his master. Because by this time, uh, he had, uh, the the thing that, the fleece that he had thrown out had been answered. He's being thankful to the Lord. Uh, Number five, and Laban and Bethuel answered and said, and and Laban and Bethuel were were the, father and brother uh, of uh, Rebekah. And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her, wi- let her be the wife of your master as the Lord has spoken. There's actually a couple things here in step five. Number one is that it was not only a relative of his, but it was, but they clearly believed in the same God. And in other words, what we were talking about earlier about finding a Christian rather than just playing the field, you know. And, and number six, uh, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Uh, and she said, I will go. So you got the, the permission of the family, 
and the permission of the prospective bride, and they uh, were all uh, God believers in God. So anyhow, I I just think it might be a good idea for for those who are looking for a mate, uh, whether it be in marriage or remarriage, particularly remarriage because there's usually kids involved. Uh, that we sat down because, well, like I say, while I was single, I went through all this and studied it, and I said, I'm not getting married unless every one of those things is in in the bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and she agreed. Amen. That's, that's solid advice. Um, I just want to interrupt, interject real quick. We're a little bit, we're, we're edging over time, so we have about 10 more minutes. I don't want to put you on the rush. Just talk normal, and then we'll, we'll get through, you know, um, as much as we can. But um, thank you. That was, that was really good. That was really good, Jim. Well, I'm sorry, a little slow, but I'm getting, oh. old. I'm getting old. <laughs> don't worry about it. No, it was solid. You're not alone, brother. <laughs> well... You don't have a problem with the gift of the gab, will you? Oh, man. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to add yeah. something to what you said. So Jim was real seriously wanting to follow that design. And what's really funny is when he went to my dad to ask for permission, he you know followed through with the whole thing. And my dad almost gave the exact words that Rebecca's family gave, he said to Jim, well, if God is in this, who am I to say? <laughs> and, and then to take it one step further, Isaac was 40 when he married Rebecca. Jim was 40 when he married Teresa. <laughs> yeah, <that's nice. laughs> so that, that he followed it pretty well. <laughs> Anyway, I don't um, have a lot of scripture to share, but um, the scripture that God did give me um, during this time um, was in the Living Bible. I don't know where that Bible is, and but I remember exactly what it said. I was hoping to find that particular Bible. It, there's a new living Bible, and that's not the same as the living Bible I had. I tried to find it in there, and it wasn't the same. But So I'm just going to write it as I remember it without actually having the scripture in front of me. So um, <clears throat> the first time that um, Jim was married and the first time I was married, I had been married 15 years, and... Jim had been married 17 years. He had a couple years of a single dad thing, and when I met him, the divorce wasn't even final for me, so that's why I was a little broken. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, Jim got saved after he was married. I got saved like less than a year before I got married, and I had been um, with this guy. We were together in the eighth grade. We had a short span my freshman year of not being together, and we were 
together all the way through high school. Um, we, um, Jim and I both um, got to experience an unfaithful spouse. Um, uh, we both chose to forgive um, when that happened and to try to make the marriage work, but after mine was like another seven years, um, he chose to leave anyway, even though I chose to stay. So I actually... Mine did too. And so did Jim's. And so um, I, I believed that he was, you know, a believer, but looking back, I wish I would have acted more like what you were talking about, just um, because I would get a little more angry thinking, you know, if you're saved, you shouldn't be acting like this. You know, if I would have treated him as an unbeliever and tried to win him instead of being angry that he wasn't living the part, (laughs) you know. And anyway, so after he left, I'm going to, I tell God, what the plan is. <laughs> I say, okay, God, I wanted to be married once. I know that's your heart. So I'm not, I don't even want to think about getting remarried. I don't want to be remarried. I had five children and I thought, I'm just going to do the best I can at raising the kids. And that's just going to be that. And I, I just, told him I didn't want to be remarried. And it was kind of like what happened to Jim. Um, It was like almost audible. He says, what if I want you to be remarried? I got so mad. (laughs) I said, but I don't want to be married. And fine, if you want me to be remarried, you're going to pick him out because I'm having nothing to do with this. Turns out that was the best thing I could have said. <laughs> it wasn't um, that I was so spiritual and knew, knew that I shouldn't have anything to do with it, but I was more angry and thought, I'm not going to pick one, so you're going to have to do it, God. <laughs> anyway, um, so we had that little conversation and disagreement and um during that time um my sister was gonna be singing at what was then philadelphia church and i was thinking i really don't feel like going to church and facing everybody i was embarrassed you just so i know the feeling (laughs) (laughs) let's we'll just go and listen to your aunt nina i'm telling my kids, we'll just go hear Aunt Nina sing at um, Philadelphia Church because she was going to be singing that day. And um, So anyway, um, I, it's hard to keep it short how Jim was. Who, he knew who I was. I really didn't know who he was, but um, he was there. No, you thought I was... You, no, no. <laughs> You, you thought I was heathen scum because you heard me on the radio and figured that I was selling vanity. <laughs> anyway, that was the old me. 
Um, we won't get into all that, but excuse me one second. I um, had cancer treatment that leaves me with a very dry mouth. That was 15 years ago, but the symptoms keep hanging on. But anyway, um, so I don't, we must have, I don't quite remember, but I must have continued to go there because eventually Jim asked me out. And at that point, my divorce still was not final. He wasn't aware of that, but so when he asked me out, I just told him that I couldn't, and I thought the kids would think I was terrible, you know, if I just moved on like that. And so um, anyway, he ended up going home after that, and at that point, I didn't know we had a twin brother. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story because when I was talking to him, I noticed the loop in his glasses and uh, I didn't know he went home. And he told me he had to go home to take the roast out of the oven. And I was staying there be at the church because my kids got involved in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe play. And so I was still there, and I saw him. And I'm thinking, that stinking liar. He told me he was going <laughs> to go take the roast out of the oven. And there he is. Anyway... So I talked to him for like a half hour. I didn't know we had a twin brother. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and I still, I, I had no clue. I went home, the whole thing. A few days later, Jim shows up when I'm out in the laundry room. I was renting an apartment at that time. We moved, had to sell the big house, and I moved into an apartment, and I was in the laundry room, and Jim shows up. He showed up to let me know I was talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> and um, he wanted to straighten things out, make sure Tim didn't say anything stupid <laughs> to ruin the whole thing. And anyway, it was, oh, I skipped a really important part that's funny. When I, after Jim, um, after I left, from him asking me out, I got into another little argument with God. Um, I said, no, God, he's too old. He was 39. I thought he was 55. Uh, and <laughs> I said, he's too old and too shy. And all of a sudden, I hear God again. Remember, you said you'd let me choose. And I'm like, fine. <laughs> so anyway... So goes on the arguments with God. Um, anyway, so Jim shows up the laundry room, and when I'm out there, and we had the longest conversation, and I just thought, this is the most awesome guy <laughs> I have ever met. It's like I began to see what God saw. And so... Um, uh, then we ended up uh, dating uh, after the divorce was final and everything. We did, the dating consisted mostly of going for walks. There's one, one place we walked. He, he said, let's walk up to the cemetery. And he started 
showing me the different tombstones. And he says, do you realize that we're only here to prepare for the day of our death? And that statement comes in um, as a real important piece later on that I'm going to get to because I had a phone call um, like five, six weeks before the wedding. Jim's kids had moved in with me. We decided the kids would come. So we had nine kids in the house, and they were living with me, and he was still living at his house. The reason we did that is because of the schooling situation. We wanted to make sure they were all in the same school system, you know, when it got started and everything. So at that point, I don't think you could live outside of your district or whatever. And so they moved in with me, and they were all going to the same school and everything. And so I have a ring on my finger. Uh, the wedding date is set for September 17th. This was October. Or October 17th. This was September 4th that I got this phone call. My ex called begging me back. And here I am, a ring on my finger, Jim's kids in my house, and I was not doing very well because I, I had three questions. I hung up, I didn't answer him, and I hung up and I literally screamed out three questions for him. I, my first question was, is he truly repentant? And I also didn't know if God actually saw us as being divorced. I mean, that's a man-made thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to go back? Does God, God, do you see me as divorced? Am I supposed to go back? And so I'm just totally losing it at that point. And then I'm thinking... I only wanted to be married once, and if I get married again, am I going to be happy again or not? And so I'm just like totally freaking out because everything's set. And so I decided to just go straight to my Bible and do my daily reading. Again, I said it was September 4th, and I screamed out those questions, and when I did, I said, I told God, you got to answer me tonight, tonight, <laughs> because, or I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And, I mean, it was, it was just horrible. So on the first question, is he truly repentant? I'm, all three answers were boom, 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 right in that scripture reading for that day. It was just like this magnificent miracle <laughs> And so I said, is he truly repentant? And it said, for the sorrow of the ungodly is not the sorrow of true repentance. And so I kept reading. And so I didn't know if I was supposed to go back. And now if you remember the cemetery story, it said, better is the man who lives for tomorrow than the man who lives for today. And so I, I, my mind went immediately to the cemetery um, 
time when Jim was saying, you know, we're only here to prepare for the day of our death. And so um, I was thinking, Jim is the better man. And so, and then on the question, could I be just as happy? And then the next thing I read was, for how do you know, old man, whether tomorrow won't be better than today? I closed my Bible, and I said, I'm marrying Jim. So that was totally miraculous. And, um, but the... So if you want to know how to get a woman, you got to take, take, take him for a date in the uh, graveyard. <laughs> anyway, just to be clear, these answers were specifically from my situation. And so it's important, very important to be in prayer because God only knows the hearts of men. We don't, I mean, we really don't even know our own hearts. So we got to really be in prayer about it. And for a long time, I thought that was the most horrible day of my life. I mean, for years, I thought it was horrible. But I realized later what a blessing that was because what if those questions would have come afterwards? And it's like God gave me that total clarity that this marriage was from him. He picked Jim out. And um, the other thing was when you have that kind of clarity, when you're letting God choose and he makes it evident this is his choice. When you come, when you get into hard times, boy, that sure makes you be able to go through those hard times. You don't think, oh my gosh, I did the wrong thing. I married the wrong guy. I mean, you just go through the trial knowing God put you there. And so um, I guess I just wanted to end real quickly if I can get to those spots here. Um, I, I hope I can kind of get the... I think I'm okay. I think I'm... Um, I hope I can uh, make it clear what I'm trying to say here. This devotional, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but one of the things that Oswell Chamber said in his devotional here, it says... The good stuff keeps us from God's best. Um, and in the case of, uh, I'll read this one line here. The great enemy of life, or excuse me, the great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but the good which is not good enough. So there's a lot of, I mean, Jim probably could have had a lot of choices, and I could have had a lot of choices that might have been good, but they weren't the best. And so we can't rely, especially in the case of marriage, um, on our common sense or our right to choose that God gives us. We need to waive that right and, um, you know, let let God make that choice and because like I said before only God knows the hearts 
of men, we cannot judge that, and I think we think we can, and that's why we make mistakes. And so my advice would be let God make the choice. He'll do it. If you're totally willing, I mean, I had no idea um, of the things that God would teach me because of the man he gave me. Things I didn't know I needed to learn. I mean, we don't know our hearts. Let God pick the right one for you. And be in prayer. Throw out fleeces, which I threw out a hundred of them. And they were always answered. God cares about getting involved in your choice for a mate. Amen. Amen. That was very well spoken. That was very well spoken. It's very practical advice. If I could just be so bold as to add, um, I remember being in a similar place. Um, I was dating Kim, and I'm just, I, I said, Lord, I don't even trust myself. I've seen, I messed up too many relationships, and I didn't get married, but I still messed up relationships. I picked ones that it would have been a disaster if I stayed with, and I just don't even know. I don't, you're going to have to show me. I think that's such good wisdom. It's a, it's a surrendered heart, and that's, that's ultimately what the Lord really can work with and bless is a heart that says, Lord, not my will be done, but nevertheless let your will be done. And uh, I just think that's so good. The other thing I love about your, your testimony regarding um, finding each other was the fact that you both have this commitment to the Word of God. You know, Jim gave us um, the six things out of Genesis 24, which were, uh, it, there was a lot of wisdom there. Thank you, Jim. That was very beautiful. And then Teresa, your desire for the Lord, communicate with me, show me, please lead me, Lord. And you went right to the Word of God, and God was so faithful to lead you through His Word. And I just think that's just a really great piece of wisdom for all of life, but it definitely will not fail you in, in marriage. And so, you guys, um, I just want to thank everybody up here for contributing that what the Lord has put on your heart and what the Lord has delivered. Um, again, we just want this to be a blessing and any of us be happy to um, answer questions afterwards, especially John. Um, <laughs> he was a pastor for a long time, so he can shoot from the hip really well. But uh, anyway, uh, we're going to just uh, close in a word of prayer and, um, and thank the Lord for his, his word and his grace. So. Lord, just thank you so much for your word, which is truth. Your very heart for us is to be sanctified, made holy, set apart in your word. And God, we can see that you've, you've established definitions. Lord, you've given instructions, and you've led us by the Holy Spirit, by your word. God, I just thank you for uh, just the balance that you brought to this Q&A tonight. And I pray, God, that by your grace, you'd bring the same balance to our, our married friends, to our married brothers and sisters, that is, and our, and our single brothers and sisters, that uh, we, would, we would follow you with all of our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. Amen.